You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome or welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Jerry Parker and me, Niels Kastoblasen, where each week we take the pulse of the global markets through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, our conversations are intended for you to learn and grow as rules-based investors. And if you're new to the show, we hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity to check out the back catalog and listen to the past episodes that you may have missed like last week's episode with Mark, where we discussed how central bank policies may affect trend-following strategies. And we also discuss uh, the Howard Mark's latest memo, as he made a remark about trend-following, which we could not resist commenting on. So if you missed that episode, I encourage you to go back and check it out. Jerry, always fantastic to have you back. How are you doing? Where are you at the moment? Same here. Um, kind of chilly Florida. It's been cold here okay. for a few weeks, you know, comparatively to sunny in 75 or 80. It's been in the 60s, 50s, all the way down to 40s. And so I'm not used to this. So, but uh, hopefully we're, we'll get back on that warming trend and uh, remind, keep reminding ourselves why we love Florida so much. Yeah, no, absolutely. I haven't been for a couple of years now, which is rare for me, given the fact that I work for a firm based in Florida. So anyways, just a quick summary of the week. I say quick, I never know quite how long it's going to be. But in terms of the action, I mean, Friday, the January employment report did very little to quell the phrase, uh, the frazzled nerves of investors following the ADP employment number, uh, which showed a contraction actually of 301,000 um, people on Wednesday. Many analysts were prepared for a negative non-farm payroll print Friday morning, especially given that Labor Secretary Marty Walsh and White House Press Secretary Jan Plasky had delivered warnings that the report may be a bad one due to the spike in the virus cases. But in fact, the BLS said that the economy added 467,000 new jobs for the month, a number greater than any of the 23 economic forecasters surveyed by Bloomberg had forecasted. But anyone who watches economic data long enough knows that the devil's is in the details as always. And this report was no different. Apparently looking through the uh, seasonal adjustment employment um, series that was the smooth one, the actual number would have been much closer to the trend. Moreover, the BLS did their 10-year look back uh, adjustment in January, and that furthers muddy the final number actually. Nevertheless, investors took the report uh, to be unambiguously positive for the economy and another reason for the Fed to raise interest rates in March. Currently, the Fed fund futures market is pricing in a 70% chance of a 50 basis points hike at the next meeting. The two-year note closed the week at 1.31%, and that's 16 basis points higher than last Friday's close. The S&P 500 is quietly closing out the week after suffering volatility spikes since the first of the year. Of course, the biggest news for the week was probably the 25% market cap drop in Facebook's parent, uh, Meta. Unlike uh, Meta, Amazon's earnings actually did far exceed expectations, sending that stock higher. Also of note this week, crude oil rallied through $92 a barrel, 
which is not likely to help the Fed in their push for bringing inflation under control. From a volatility perspective, the week seemed like a story of two tales in the S&P 500, calm upon um, calm upward moves during the first half of the week and then panic selling uh, on Thursday. Initially, though, the S&P 500 was able to carry over the positive momentum from the end of last week and concluded a four-day winning streak on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, it was the exact opposite of last month as the joy quickly turned into fear amid the release of Facebook's Q4 earnings report, which resulted in the company having the biggest one-day drop in market cap in history and the equivalent of GDP of a small country. This somehow brings back memories of the bursting of the dot-com bubble, with the difference being the names and the size. Um, while the bubble back then primarily affected the Nasdaq tech companies, uh, tech companies today, sorry, are now major components in the S&P 500. Apple, Microsoft, Alphabet, Amazon, and Facebook combined have 17.5% share of the S&P 500, so they have become major drivers of that index. S&P 500 finally closed the week at 4,500, up 1.55%. From its close a week earlier, and the VIX closed at 23, which was down 4.6%. Jerry, I wanted to just sort of bring you in here and um, just uh, ask you what you've been focusing on. It's been a little while since we last spoke. I think it was actually at the big conversation we had before Christmas with everyone else. So that was, um, that's been a few weeks. So what have you been noticing in the beginning of this year so far? Well, uh, a few things. Let's see here. It looks like this the dollar is struggling and uh, maybe this dollar rally is pausing or ending. I'm still along uh, the dollar versus almost every currency except the China currency. Okay, but it uh, does. It, it had a, it has its fits and starts, and it doesn't look like it's in a roaring bull market anymore. So that's uh, wondering about that. Interest rates, short rates, it just can't go wrong there. They 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 um, stop for a while, but then they have a, a tremendous move down, like uh, Friday, I think, uh, especially the European interest rates Thursday, Friday, maybe, and uh, something we hadn't seen in a long time. So being short some of those, which has not worked for many years, all of a sudden, once again, we get rewarded for hanging in there like we were the past few years with the commodities. Grains keep going. That's nice. Energy keeps going. Now, I think there's just this battle going on, it seems to me. Uh, is the Fed buying the S&Ps? That's what I keep asking myself because they try to go down as well, but someone will not let them go down, whether it's retail buying the dippers or the Fed or something, uh, no matter, uh, we've seen a few days recently where rates are skyrocketing and we're setting new lows in the bonds and the short-term rates and the stocks are uh, doing okay. They hang in there, they rally, but the volatility in the stocks is something we haven't seen in a long time. It, it is definitely reminiscent to me of 08, where we actually were able to get short closer to the highs which I've been doing recently in some of the other indices, um, Asia, and just uh, Russia ETF and South Korea ETF and some of the Asian Nikkei and indices like that. But it does seem like um, when, when 2008 got going as well, there was a lot of starts and stops and uh, big rallies within what ended up being a massive downtrend. So no prediction here. It was just kind of reminiscent of that 2008 period. Yeah, no, I think those are actually great um, 
observations and um, and you know interesting about you, you you said you know what's holding up the equities at this stage. Um, I think that's actually quite an interesting one, especially as you rightly point out what that allows to um, to potentially happen for for trend following strategies in terms of reducing our long exposure initially and then maybe even getting short at, at decent levels, uh, unlike the difficult um, sort of environment, even though I think trend followers were largely profitable during COVID, but it happened so quickly that the profits had to come from elsewhere. Actually, equities was a pretty big drag on performance during that period, but it just happened to be that there were other uh, opportunities that made even more Money this time around, we we have other opportunities in the portfolio, and if we're not going to lose too much on the long equity side, uh, then that's really good news. On our side, you know, also on our side, the country, the uh, trend following strategies continued to perform pretty well, um, given this backdrop of soaring interest rates, uh, especially in the shorter end uh, of the curve, and actually Bank of England. Uh, kind of surprised the uh, the market this week with a 50 basis points hike. I'm not sure if people have really expected that. And of course, the tone of the ECB suddenly changed and they now seem to accept at least that inflation is not going to go away anytime soon. And of course, this doesn't mean that now that all the, now that all the central banks have made this U-turn in their narrative, it doesn't mean that we couldn't actually see a uh, a sort of easing of inflation pressures in the numbers over the next period of time because they're clearly not the first movers when it comes to that. Um, but of course, consensus may also have gotten a little bit ahead of itself uh, in its current sort of tightening mode and gravity may set, set in at some point. The Fed is now priced to hike five times this year, more than 100 basis points and the ECB pricing also looks like more than 50, 40 basis points actually of hikes in the coming 12 months. And even when the quote-unquote laggards um, in Frankfurt are priced to hike materially, it may be worth thinking twice about the current uh, narrative, so to speak. And, um, and in terms of performance, of course, as you already mentioned, I mean, this week was really focused on these three months contracts that have been dead in the water for so long when, inflation, uh, when, when interest rates were just zero. But the UK and Euroland um, had, uh, have really come out of, of hibernation now in and uh, has given some life into the portfolio, which is nice to see. Equity sector on our side was pretty flat. Um, and we had some small losses in currencies, but interest rates were just uh, roaring away. Uh, so overall, a, a good week. And um, and again, also just worth noticing that, uh, that this thing about the energies, as, as you rightly say, I mean, they continue to produce some some uh, nice uh, upwards moves in, in, in the markets. Um, in terms of volatility on our side, um, you know, even our strategy had tried to shift positions uh, at the end of January, but it did suffer a little bit this week from the spike and the reversals we saw Thursday and Friday, and that caused it to lose a little bit of ground uh, this week. Um, very brief update on my trend following portfolio. It's a uh, Shorter term than what we do at, at Dunn. So uh, it's actually uh, up for the week as well, but it's uh, still down a little bit for the year, uh, unlike uh, Dunn. So that's just how it is with different timeframes and slightly different markets, of course. In terms of the risk to stop, uh, it would lose just shy of 9% on Monday if everything gets stopped out. And that's pretty much unchanged from last week. All right. Well, we're going to dive into quite a few topics Um that you have brought along, uh, Jerry. Now, 
before we do so, well, it's, it's a, it is kind of a topic that, but you didn't bring it along in that sense because it was an exchange you had with Rich actually and 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 uh, on email and I was copied into that and I just wanted to bring it up. I don't think Rich is going to mind uh, if we talk a little bit about it because last week, Mark and I talked about uh, Howard Mark's latest memo and we're big big fans of, of, what, of, of the work he does, but he did in his memo write about trend following. He made a reference to it, which... Mark and I wasn't, you know, kind of um, in agreement with, let's put it that way. And and you also, with with Rich, um, had a little bit of a um, sort of back and forth on this. Um, so I want to read the, the what uh, Howard Marks uh, wrote. I'm going to read your one line um, that uh, that you said in, 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 in your email to Rich and me. And then I'm going to actually, uh, even though I haven't actually asked Rich about this, but I'm sure he won't mind, read a comment that Rich gave, which I actually thought was pretty, pretty good, pretty insightful, and then we can take it wherever we want, um, so to speak. But Howard Marks in his memo writes, let me put that another way. On average, mutual fund investors tend to sell the funds with the most recent performance um, missing out on their potential recoveries in order to chase the funds that have done the best and thus likely participate in their return to earth. We know that retail investors tend to be trend followers that, uh, as described above and their long-term performance often suffers, suffers as a result. I think maybe some of that was things you had inserted. Um, I'm not sure. Don't want to misquote uh, Howard Marks here. Anyways, you said to us, Howard really doesn't know what trend following is all about, which I actually think is, is true when you read those comments. Um, and then Rich comes in and says, totally agree, Jerry. But Howard suffers from the same perception that most do about trend following. They, they adopt a simplistic interpretation given that everyone thinks they understand what a trend is. They have not dug into the specified nuance that we do now in understanding why our diversified systematic process makes our method a particularly counterintuitive one to what the mass participant thinks. If we position ourselves away from the general perception and enlighten the, so, uh, the poor souls out there about why we have chosen this route, then hopefully we can dispatch this perception. To put Howard on the same footing as us, as I, would, uh, as I do uh, love his mind, he trades in a counterintuitive way looking for extreme value in companies. We also trade in a counterintuitive way with our process. Both methods are counterintuitive approaches, so that creates a commonality between what Howard and we do. However, Howard just needs to understand our process better and why it actually aligns with a counterintuitive rationale. Then our different processes, processes can both be considered an efficient method that are ways to position ourselves against the mass thinking. Anyways, any thoughts? Any further things? Well, um, I, I agree with Rich, you know, and, and, uh, but in, in this particular comment of Howard's, he's so far off that, you know, he's not even really uh, making the usual mistakes that even trend followers can make about how, why trends work, and what, hunting outliers and uh, all of that stuff. So, so in this situation, though, with Howard, he, he's so off topic that it's, not, it's like he's not even talking about trend following systems. Uh, because I think you and I would agree with his point, which is uh, doesn't have anything to do with 
classic systematic trend following. It's more like, um, you know, if, if a client came to me and said, I'm going to buy Chesapeake, I'm selling Dunn because Chesapeake's had a couple of good months versus Dunn. And then later I'm going to sell Chesapeake and buy Dunn back. We'd say, no, stop that. That's not the type of trend following you need to do. You found two good trend followers who have good, robust rules and uh, make it a, a, an investment in both of them and hold on forever. So Howard, in this particular quote, is uh, saying the words trend following, but I don't, he doesn't mean any, he's not even talking about what we do. So it's hard for me, he may understand actual trend following the way we talk about every week here on Clubhouse and in emails, but he's not given any evidence to, of it in that particular quote. Uh, so uh, he needs to like uh, talk more about what real trend following is, then Rich can teach him like the graduate, the graduate courses of trend following, but he's not even on the right page. And uh, that's another thing too I find with Howard is that if you read it and ignore a bit here and there, you have a tendency to really agree with it. And um, there was an article that's one of the best articles I've read in a long time that he wrote in the Financial Times last week. And I tweeted the heck out of this thing. And it would be good to go over some of those quotes because they're really good. And we all agree with them. And there could have been written by a trend follower, actually. And I actually think that it's a lot of the quotes from that same um, letter that he wrote. He just left out the negative things about trend following, per se. But he basically goes on in that Financial Times article to say one of the biggest problems that all investors have is getting out of a good trade too quickly. And boy, you know, haven't, I, haven't we all said that and felt that and done that? Um, and that's a really big thing on my list these days is to hang on to these outliers and don't get out so quickly. You know, it's the old turtle cliche, uh, be fearful with your losses, not fearful that, fearful that it's going to turn into a bigger loss, but not fearful with your profits. You want to be... That, that it's going to go away. You want to be hopeful that it's going to get larger, uh, but not hopeful with the losses because uh, you don't want to sit there and say, well, hopefully this loss comes back into a profit or a smaller loss. So uh, I think Howard is right on as long as he stays like very philosophical. We have a tendency to all agree. Yeah. So so the way I um, kind of read the, 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 the memo that he wrote and what he's referring to I think what he, I think, and you should, one should be careful to say what he really means because, of course, he's an incredibly smart person. So he probably knows what he means. But, anyways, I would have phrased it differently because I would have phrased it something more like performance chases, right? We know that people, um, you know, chase performance. So that's one thing. We know that people get scared and they sell out of their long positions close to the low and so on and so forth. And that's obviously where, where he wants to buy things. He wants to be that contrarian at that stage and buy things that he consider to be very cheap. And then he really wants to be a trend follower. He wants to ride those values back up again for as long as he can. And then he talks a little bit as well about, you know, about getting out and, and, and so on and so forth. So, so I think that's, um, um, you know, quite, quite interesting and, may, and maybe we're not that far away, but it's just kind of the, the way we talk about it is, is different and, and I would imagine that uh, Howard Marks fully understands uh, real trend following if, if, if he wants to, at least. And then I think, um, you know, it's just the misuse of a couple of words. Like um, he says something like, uh, 
I don't like it when people sell just because the market goes down. Right. And so, well, do trend followers sell when just when the market goes down? I would use not just, but when. Yes, when, but not all the time. Like all uh, situations where there's a sell-off, we don't sell, uh, even if it's been a big sell-off sometimes. I mean, you mentioned this last week uh, in some of these sell-offs we've seen. And I got to thinking, you know, in some of these markets where it really looks like the trend has reversed or the market has really sold off, my long-term systems may still be long. So I only sell uh, when the market sells off, but not every time. It has to hit my exit criteria, the 100-day low or the moving average crossover. So um, we are we are selling when the market goes down, but not uh, we are following a good plan. And, um, yeah, and we're not and panicking and we're not selling for, um, yeah, I mean, it would be good. Let me, I, I want to read a couple of these quotes. Sure, um, go ahead. Go ahead. Okay. When investors use poor judgment and reduce exposure through ill-conceived selling, they will fail to participate fully in big trends. That's a cardinal sin of investing. It leads to dismounting from the miracle of long-term compounding of returns. I mean, Richard could have written that, right? And, and what is the de definition of ill-conceived selling? For you and me, not following your system. It's as right. simple as that. And we're going to sell only when the market goes down and buy only when it goes up. But that's just a characteristic. But it's not when we do it. We do these buys and sells when our system parameters, our entries and exits that we religiously follow. So it's not ill-conceived. It's following a, a rule. And so he's not even close to criticizing what we do. Uh, he may still criticize it once we have this debate or theoretical debate with him uh, being absent all the time. But uh, still, I, I really, I can make the same complaint about most trend followers. They don't follow their rules and they try to get out of these profits without giving back too much of a loss versus closing their eyes and getting out when their exit gets hit. The other thing I think we need to put into the discussion just uh, just for clarification, and that is, of course, when he talks about ill-conceived selling, right? Well, if you're a long-only investor, which he is, right? He buys undervalued securities and they make money from them coming back. So he's only interested in things that move up in price, right? So when we sell, we may actually not just get out of things. We might actually even go short and make money from that. So it's not a bad sell. It could be a very appropriate sell that turns into a profitable short trade. That doesn't happen in his world. So I kind of understand why he may consider getting out of anything to be a bad thing when you're a value investor. Unless, of course, it goes to zero, a value of zero, then you probably should have gotten out. Um, so we also come from different worlds and, and therefore we, of course, look at these things um, in, a, in a different way. Um, but it would be fun if he uh, would join us one day for a conversation about um, trend following. It would. Um, and, you know, he, I'm sure Howard has his value entry exit rules. And right. he doesn't hold on to something forever. Uh, he definitely books a profit. He has mm -hmm. a lot of wealth, a lot of AUM, a lot of homes. So I know he has definitely spent some of that money that he's made. So, uh, okay, so let's do another one. Most people invest a lot of time and effort trying to avoid unpleasant feelings like regret and embarrassment. And what could cause an investor more self 
recrimination, I can't pronounce that word, than watching a big gain evaporate. Right. I mean, Richard Dennis could have written that by saying, yeah. like, don't get uptight and, and feel bad because you had a big gain and you gave some of it back. You gave it back because you were following your rules. And I, I even commented on that saying, love your drawdowns, love your losses, do the hard thing, do the right thing, turtle 101. And I'm like, okay, this is the same guy who we, I really, I think this, this, uh, a lot of what he wrote in this article in the Financial Times could have been uh, written by a trend follower and uh, from a theoretical, you know, high-level point of view. And I don't think that's lost on him because basically I think he is a big fan of disciplined, consistent, uh, rules-based, you know, in his own way, trading. And it you can see it in his writings over the years. I've quoted him so many times on Twitter. Yeah, no, absolutely. Okay, let's leave uh, Mr. Marx for now and uh, let's uh, deal with some of the tweets um, that you had sent to me. The first one is kind of myself getting into trouble here because I did forewarn um, last week that uh, you were going to come with a, a comeback on that. Even though I tried to, in my in my tweet, I tried to kind of, um, what do you say, um, soften it up a little bit because I'm saying, well, Jerry's going to say that the entry, getting into the trade is the most important. And I'm not arguing with that, right? But that wasn't enough. I know you're going to come back and 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 uh, discuss this. So anyways, I think our conversation came from the fact that I think a lot of people find it more difficult, let's put it that way, to figure out where to put their exit rules or how to come up with an exit rule compared to finding an, a rule of entry because, and this is, these are kind of my words, I think it's easier to spot when a trend begins, sort of the breakout is easier to spot on a chart. It's harder, certainly in, in real time, to figure out when the trend is over. So, Mr. Parker, what have you yeah, to say? Yeah, you know, I, I, like, I like this subject, and there's a couple of subjects that I like that I'm in the big minority on. But um, this one, I, I wouldn't bring up again, except I had a a really aha moment in the sense that I feel like now I know where you're coming from and you're not telling me where you I had to figure it out. I had to figure it out. You weren't th that <laughs> upfront with me, but you really stepped in it because it was, okay. uh, but it, it helped me clarify my thoughts, which is that, um, and you also said something else that, which was something like some of these stocks recently, Kathy Woods, they've gone down so much. The give backs were so dramatic that it can't be right to still be in them, you know. So, so I feel that pain. But I think that what you're getting, what you're forgetting, though, is our ultimate loyalty is uh, to the system exit. So, if Jerry, which he does, trades these long-term systems, you could make the same claim about me. I just don't think it's right that, that you could give back all this Moderna profit or Tesla profit. It just can't be right. It's too much. Well, look, no matter what it looks like, you know, it's going to look ugly sometimes. These systems test out really well, and they do well over a 30-year period looking at all the trades. But on an individual trade, it, yeah, it does not look right, quote-unquote right. But 
we always say following our system and waiting for that exit is right. It's not looking at the chart. And then I thought you had a very good insight in that um, this idea that we need to see um, has the trend ended. And that is, I hear this a lot from people, but this is, we have, it has nothing to do with the way we trade. Has the trend ended? Um, I have four systems, and sometimes system one gets out quicker, and uh, systems the rest of the systems are still long. So it's only ended, that trend is only ended for system one. System two has a different definition, as does three and four. But still, having it in our head that we need to figure out when the trend has ended is not what we're about what we're about is is it time for me to get out of this trade based upon my exit so we're not looking so then you even went on to say it's easy to see when the trend begins is at this breakout um but we need to focus on uh it's hard to know when the trend ended well then i got to thinking oh there's another problem there you're identifying as well the difference between the different breakouts on the entry are usually very small. You know, mm, you're going to get in here, then you're going to wait a while, get in and at a higher breakout. The ATRs that are so Im- Im- impactful on how much money we make, uh, they're going to be similar as well. So it's not a big call. You know, if you get in at the 100-day high and I get in at the 125-day high, that's not going to probably usually have much bearing on the P&L of that trade and our experience in that trade. Uh-oh. But when we start choosing different exits, even ones that are fairly close, like a 100-day low and 125-day low, these can bring up massive different performance on a single trade that could be very, very freaky. And it, and it could just like ruin our month, ruin our day, because system one gets out quicker, and now system two has much more potential to give back more profit <clears throat> on this particular trade. But once again, we don't look at uh, our systems in that light. We don't say what I'm going to ju- make a judgment <clears throat> based on this particular trade. We looked at 30 years worth of data, 5,000 trades historically, in, in 100 or 75 markets to decide which systems to trade, which parameters to use. And then we looked at these results and the results of the two different systems uh, were pretty similar over the test period. But it does bother us tremendously that there could be very different in today's trades, this month's trades. And uh, we don't like that. And so there is, and so if you look at it from that point of view of which one should I choose, which one is, is the most important thing to look at? Oh, it's definitely the exit. And then we have no clue as to which exit is going to work better over this short time frame. Um, so we're just left with the problem of we have to uh, look at these exits and, and entries over the whole test period to decide which ones are the ones we should use. But it's impossible. It's all random luck or bad luck uh, to <clears throat> to choose a certain exit for the current set of trades because we're going to probably be disappointed in, in whichever one we choose. We'll get out too quickly or we'll stay too long. And uh, that's why I choose multiple exits, as, I'm, as I know you do too. 
Yeah. So, I mean, you bring up a lot of really interesting points. So, um, um, and, and you're reminding me of things I can't even remember that I, I alluded to. So I definitely just want to clarify that if I made any comments about um, Kathy Wood's uh, arc and all of that stuff, clearly, if you're a trend follower, you just follow the rules. It doesn't really matter how much it's given back. So I completely agree with that. But let's, let's unpack this a little bit because this is interesting. So if I think about it, and, and you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong here. If I think about it, I would hazard to say that many classical trend followers would probably have more or less one type of entry. Let's call it a breakout. So they would say, okay, we use the 100-day, the 150-day, the 200-day, 250. Let's just call that those are the four entries. So it's a very simple way of identifying the entry. That I would think that most people who use breakout, they, they just stick with that. What I mean by it's more difficult about the exit, and this is where you, you can definitely correct me if I'm wrong. Well, I mean, we're all guessing here. I'm kind of guessing that a lot of managers would use more than a single type of exit, meaning we have one single type of entry. There might be four of them, but it, it's the same type. But on the exit side, we may have more than just, say, a 100-day low or a 50-day low, whatever it might be. And this is where I mean by, well, there must be a reason. I'm trying to think here out loud. There must be a reason why we're spending more time trying to come up with interesting exits, whether it's be a retracement from the last uh, high or whatever it might be. It could be, but at least when we were designing systems, um, you know, before I joined Don, we were we did end up with more rules, more types of exits, and actually in the in the in the in the kind of trend following model that I refer to um, every week and talk a little bit about it. If I look inside that model, it has different types of calculating the exit. It's only going to pick one of them, so there's only there can only be one exit. I completely agree with that. But we, it does look at different ways of calculating it and it just picks the one that's closest to the price, right? So that's what I mean by it's harder. It's, it's, I'm not saying it necessarily it's more important. Maybe that's not the right word that it's more important. But I'm thinking that it's a little bit harder to figure out where to get out and therefore, when do we quote-unquote, and by the way, that was a great point you made up. I mean, the trend probably never ends. It shifts direction, and depending on our look-back period, it's either one or the other, but that's a really important point for people to understand. A trend probably never really ends. It depends on the, on the model timeframe you look at. But let's just stay with that, um, that my experience at least, and that is we were spending a lot more time on looking at exit. And also, if I refer back to, um, to, to Don a bit here, we have done a lot of work in terms of coming up with better exits in the last 10 plus years. And, and I, think, I think from our side, we would say that those improvements to our exits have been meaningful. So that's what I meant, Jerry, when I said what I said. Gotcha. Well, uh, okay. But now we're back into another issue that, we, that not all of us agree on. And that is... Um, the one uh, one entry, one exit, and a stop loss. So it's it's subtle, but you it's not one exit in, in the way that I uh, define right. it in this one entry, one exit, a stop loss. If you have two exits, but it'll only use one. No, you, yes. can, you can only have one. So you can have another system that has that same exit, 
that has a different exit, and that's traded on a certain percentage of the capital, but it only has one exit as well. But having a system that has two different exits is something that I you know, cuts down sample size, and it's not something that I would go for. But once again, I think it's back to this psychological issue that, to me, it doesn't really matter uh, that you give me a one entry, one exit, and a stop loss system, and then you test it over a 30 or 40 year period, and it makes the most amount of money. It does have some drawdowns, but it is really good. I mean, it's the best because I'm not going to accept that because I looked at the data and there were periods in there where I gave back too much profit and I cannot handle that. And I'm going to classify as in air quotes improvement by digging deep and coming up with another exit. So one entry, two exits and a stop loss or three exits and a stop loss because there's some situations out there that I need to navigate around that that breakout exit is going to give back too much profit. And I don't want that to occur. Irrespective of the fact that if you stuck with the one entry, one exit and stop loss, that system would still do really well and your robustness score would be much higher. Yes, I don't even care about that. I cannot handle the fact that during some periods, I'm going to have big profits, nice profits, mega profits, that really, if you wait for that 100-day low, 150-day low, it's just intolerable. My clients will freak out. I will freak out. So this is the problem that people have with the classic trend following. <clears throat> I think this is the genesis of let's fall target. We can say we have one exit like Jerry wants us to, but we'll do the vol targeting on top. And as the market goes up, as it gets really volatile, as the market moves so far away from this breakout exit, we're taking some off all the time. Ha ha. Look at that. Isn't that cool? Yeah, that's cool, but you're you're messing with the math gods. And you know, these guys who do this are way better at math than me. So I have no business saying this, but you you know, you're 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 making making the outlier trades smaller, you're paying attention to volatility, you're not letting profits run, on and on, you're violating all these ideas, but this is, this is why they want to do that. So let me, let me just be absolutely clear, I fully understand what you, uh, when you, what you said there. I mean, I agree on the vault targeting. I mean, I don't even consider that as an exit. I mean, that's, that, that's, that's not trend following, that's whatever we call it, whether people would call it risk management or whatever, but it's not the part of the trend following. So I'm not concerned about that. Um, but what I do want to fully understand from you, because maybe over the years I've kind of misunderstood then some of the things we've talked about. I got the impression, I mean, clearly you could say classical trend, you know, let's just take it, you know, 100 day in and a 50 day low to get out. Simple, one entry, one exit, you know. But I always kind of got the impression that you might use some kind of retracement as well from, the, from a high to avoid necessarily giving back too much. And in my mind, I thought, oh, so maybe Jerry does use more than one type of exit. But is that me misunderstanding it? Or is there something in there? And then you just talk about it or you classify it slightly differently to the way I think about it. Okay. So now I think uh, you're right. I, I, have not, um, I have said that, that I can, can understand people doing things like that. Now, I think... Um, it's, it's very similar to um, another good topic. It was a good uh, tweet from Wayne this week on this topic of uh, 
basically, you know, at some point in time, you need to say, hey, I'm going to trade smaller. February, right. March of 2020, all hell is breaking loose. You're losing money hand over fist very quickly. Volatility is out of control. It's, it's a crazy period. You're having a monster drawdown. Let's get rid of uh, 25% of our positions and trade 25% smaller for a while. And then things get back to normal and we'll unwind all of that and we'll get out of this uh, kind of reducing equity. So uh, it, it is a, a definition of not following the, the core system. However, if you have this sort of infrequent use of uh, money management and, and risk protection, uh, when you do it, it does allow you to continue trading the system. So ironically, you are kind of violating the system once every two or three years, not a daily dose, but you are um, saying, hey, I got to stay in the game. I'm going to trade smaller. And usually when I've done it, it hasn't worked. It worked well in February of 2020. Finally, I got a, I got a benefit from it. But it does sort of uh, allow you to keep trading your systematic approach and the rules by uh, ratcheting down the risk. And I think in the same way, when you have this crazy profit and where the ATR has gone up by 10 or 20 times, uh, whether you take some off or whether you have this retracement style exit where you know you have a 500 ATR profit, and then you say, look, I'm gonna get out of some of this if it retraces 50 or 100 ATRs. You know, yeah. It's not much of a, uh, of a risk protection thing. People are like, you're going to give back 100 ATRs? You're, you're mostly saying, well, I'm going to take some profit after a massive sell-off for most people. That would just be intolerable. And so I do think that that's a good idea. And that's perfectly fine. Now, um, it should not be a daily dose uh, or uh, even kind of like something that happens like frequently. And I've, often, I've also said, especially with Rich in the audience, because I want his feedback and I want him to confirm. And he usually does confirm this next point, which is, I don't think using that retracement exit makes more money. I, I don't think it does. And it will on this particular trade or any particular trade, possibly. But if you did it over time, unfortunately, it probably makes, you're probably going to make more money just throwing caution to the wind and saying, I am not going to get out until my breakout exit is hit and I'm not going to protect these profits in any way. I cannot usually do that. Once a year, I do sell out of something that has had a massive drawdown, but still has a long ways to go. Right. And I go ahead and do that. So as a daily dose, as something that theoretically I'll argue about, I, I, don't, I don't think it works better uh, but I do think it helps me because I'm a weak human. Well, now I understand it. That was that is what I got kind of cross-wired in a sense. I thought it was built into the system, and that's why I thought, ah, oh, hang on, that's you know that makes it two exits. But I see what you mean now. I have it built in, but the parameters are so extreme that it's probably ridiculous for most people, you know, to right. something like that. If it goes 500 ATRs, don't give all 500 back. Well, <laughs> how many trades go 500? And so when things go 100 ATRs and they give back 75 or 50, that I'm just sitting there. And most people are like, you are crazy. And I'm like, yeah, <laughs> but 
it really is the situation that I'd like to talk about, which is look at all of the trades over 35 years, not this one. This one is very painful. And we tell ourselves about that. Thus, that leads us to want to violate our rules, which we need to not think about those situations unless it gets way more extreme. Very cool. All right. Then we move on to um, some of your uh, tweets that you wanted to uh, bring up, some of the points. And uh, the first one it was an article about, uh, I think, risk parity, as far as I remember. I think you wrote in your tweet, there's no shortage of people sounding the alarm on the systematic risk parity trade. It still relies on the crucial concept of bonds going up when stocks go down. If that's no longer is the case, you need to create something different. Talk to me about that, Jerry. Yeah, this is a, was a pretty good article. And I'm just always looking for hope that people will see the benefits of adding commodities and um, let's say currencies to their portfolio. And he's sort of going on about how if the 60-40 and the assumptions of the past that stocks and bonds would be, be uh, not correlated, if that goes away, then what are people going to do? And so obviously we can step right in there and say, well, here's what they should do. They should add the currencies and the commodities and they should, uh, with the overlay of trend, I mean, it's just not going to get any better than that. And there's uh, no substitute for shorts as well. And we have so much to offer the trend following uh, model to the less, uh, less, lesser types of diversification that people are sort of used to. And um, then he used this word called, uh, it's a bit of a, oh, I can't think of the word. Um, yeah, this is, by the way, an article in uh, Yahoo Finance, I think, or Bloomberg that you're referring to. Yeah, yeah he, he, I was just trying to take that uh, article and talk about how uh, CTAs are so suited for uh, meeting the needs of people and um, with their extra with the with the commodities and with uh, the trend following are you thinking about musical chairs musical chairs yes, yes. Rich keeps coming up with spider webs and all of these different uh, ways of looking at the markets and so i musical chairs i thought that was so good and um, when the market is pulling the chair out from under you when you think you finally understood what's going on in the markets and how to defend yourself and how to be properly diversified you have it unless you have uh material positions in a trend-following portfolio with uh, currencies, commodities, stocks, bonds, longs, shorts. Shorts are so important uh, <clears throat> to safety and to de-risking uh, from a long-only portfolio. I mean, we, we're looking pretty good now with some long stocks, some short indices, short stocks in our portfolio, and the currencies, commodities, and interest rates that... Um, you know, it's this. This is a perfect time to sort of see how much different we are than everyone. This gentleman was just talking about maybe some token investments and in something he calls alternatives, which I have no idea what people mean. Sometimes people mean private equity when they say alternatives, which is not going to help nearly as much as what CTAs can offer. Yeah, it's kind of um, somewhat related, actually. But uh, this uh, coming week, um, I'm going to publish the first in a series of. Uh, a new series, which we call the Allocator Series, which is the one that Alan uh, is is hosting. Of course, people will know Alan from from the last few episodes he's done on the Systematic Investor, but he's also going to host this new series called Allocator Series. And actually, what's interesting about it is that one of the first guests that we uh, did the recording with 
um, talks about something, I think, which is related without having read this particular article that you're referring to, but where they talked about, and these are big CIOs, uh, you know, billions and trillions under management, right? But where they talk about the need to redefine safe assets, right? Because bonds have been looked upon this uh, in, in the light in the last 30 years as being the safe asset that's going to always be there and help out when equities go down. And you know what I was, I couldn't remember in the beginning of, of our conversation today, and you talked about this. The, the other thing I was reminded of is this thing about, you know, has the, you know, has the Fed put been redefined, meaning have the strike price changed given what they're trying to do now? Maybe they can't be, because you were saying someone is buying the equities and I'm, you know, thinking straight away, oh, could the Fed be starting to do that now? But actually my thinking is, no, they're not because they must have redefined the, where the Fed st uh, put strike is, given that they now want to focus on inflation. So they maybe have to let equities go down a little bit more than they would normally want. So anyways, that's completely... But that was what I couldn't remember before. So um, anyways... I definitely think that when the stocks crash, you'll see uh, you know a bid come in in the bonds. Okay, that's fine. Mm -hmm. And then when they settle sure. down again... The market will say, okay, well, the bonds need to go lower because of inflation. Yeah, so they'll go lower. It's just an orderly transition. If the stocks go down quietly and orderly, and um, <clears throat> or rates go up quietly and orderly, then, you know, you could have this uh, difference. But if there's going to be a 2,000 day, 2000, a, a negative 2,000 point day in the Dow, I'm sure the bonds are going to rally. But so what? How much? And is that, is that the end of their big downtrend? Uh, it may not be. So there is some momentary benefit for massive down moves. But then reality is back. The Fed is back with the reality that inflation is too high. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of people, of course, a lot of um, younger investors uh, who have only maybe experienced, even if they are seasoned because they've looked at the markets for the last 20 years, but in the last 20 years, what people may not know is that the correlation between bonds and equities have for the most of the most time, I think like 80% of the time, if you look on daily observations, it has been negative. But what people may not realize is that if you go back 50 years or 100 years, then about 66% of the time, the correlation is positive. So what we saw in January where equities and bonds moved down together is actually the norm. We just haven't seen that norm for quite a while. So that's what um, what I think is important to uh, know. Jerry, then you had another one, another tweet. Um, let me remind you what it is. This is an article for uh, from the FT. Why do some, why do so many investors sell out too early? Uh, maybe is that the one you? You've, you, I think you referred to that earlier yeah, today. Yeah, that's the Howard Marks. So that is the Howard yeah, Marks. That's Howard Marks. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to dig into that more, or have we already talked about I think that? We, yeah, I think we did a good job, Howard and Jerry. We don't. Uh, we think that one of the major problems is selling out of a good trend too quickly. Now, Howard has his metrics. I have my metrics. Trend followers do it their way, but he's one hundred percent right. Uh, hold mm -hmm. on to those profits. Yeah. No. Absolutely. Oh, good. All right, then there's one um, that is, I think you got inspired by one of the Morgan Housel uh, recent articles called Fluke. Uh, he's obviously also a fantastic writer, uh, brings up um, some really good topics. Uh, I enjoy his, his, his articles. 
Um, and then your your response to that uh, uh, article, and I have I have to admit I have not read the article, but you write forecasting is hard, and not because people aren't smart, but because trivial accidents can be influential in ways that are impossible to foresee. Much of history is driven by chance, accident, and flukes. And then you reference something I think I spoke with Rich about, and that is endogenous outliers aren't predictable. Talk to me a little bit about that. Well, I think that that podcast you had last week with Rich was one of the, the one a few weeks ago. The week before, yeah. yeah. That was one of the best ones ever. I mean, that is just the greatest thing ever. And I learned so much from uh, JP and Rich. I listened to the JP as well. And I got Rich to admit yesterday that he had come up with, uh, he, he had thought of this idea, but he still wanted to give JP the credit for doing the research. And I thought this right. was the most profound thing that I have heard in a long time, which is uh, that 90% of the trades, the, the outliers, are don't come with any news associated with them necessarily. Right. exactly, yeah. And that the other 10% that go up a lot and crash, because the news is out there very quickly, the volatility uh, com comes very quickly. And maybe we don't capture as much of that with our long-term trend following as uh, I thought that was just fantastic that it was only 10%. You know, I asked Rich though, this, uh, you know, kind of bottom line, Jerry type question, which is Rich, does this mean we can have a different exit? Okay, see how I'm, I'm, I'm on your side now. I want this different exit, but not because well, like of that. these psychological reasons, which, I mean, that's really why I, I use one now, but. I don't. I want to get away from my weakness, and I want to say, ah, based upon the math, JP. Now, if we can identify this trend that immediately out of the box we know exactly why it's going up, it's going to skyrocket. It's parabolic. Can we slip in a shorter term exit? Because now we we identify it. And Rich said no initially, but then now he's maybe having second thoughts. So this is something we should keep going and try to get to the bottom of this. And maybe uh, figure out if we. Our long-term systems are so suited to 90% of these endogenous trades where the, the reason that the, that the trend is happening is a mystery. We don't see it. It's, right. it's unfolded slowly. And um, so we're just golden, holding on to these trades, waiting. And um, no one knows why it's going to happen. It's, 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 uh, it's, you can't predict it. And it just sort of unfolds uh, over time slowly. Um, and so obviously if it, if it doesn't look like that, my initial reaction was, well, let me take profits quicker. You know, what's funny about it too, Niels, is that this is exactly, uh, was very similar to something that Rich Dennis and Bill Eckhart talked about in their turtle class. It wasn't endogenous and exogenous, which took me a long time to figure out how to pronounce. I've been practicing right. all week, you know, <laughs> uh, but it's really a situation where the turtles were told it was more than just breakouts. It was what they called contrary opinion. So when you put these trades on, if there is news out there or when the news starts coming out explaining these trends, uh, you should be worried. Or even better, if you uh, read about it in the New York Times that something is happening in the soybeans, be a bit nervous. Maybe you want to start planning to get out quicker that the news now confirms not, not the fundamentals per se, but the news. And the news could be about fundamentals, but it's in the news. But 
the golden ticket would be if you get into a taxi, because this was way before Uber. Of course. And your taxi driver says, hey, what about those soybeans, right? He's long too. Then you kind of know it's time to get out. So I don't know if this uh, sort of contrary opinion, it was a good 30 or 40% of what we were supposed to look at. I don't know if that made it into the Covell books, but it was a major part of turtle trading. But once we got all fancy and all intellectual and started hiring guys to do research for us using uh, prices and, you know, computers, we weren't able to, you know, or desire to incorporate this major part of turtle trading into our model. So it kind of has gone away, but it is kind of funny to see this really smart, these really smart guys, JP and Rich, uh, sort of bringing this idea back that uh, news is a bad, is a contrary indicator to the trend, possibly. So, okay, so let me break this down because this is important. So it's kind of almost like a breaking news from uh, maybe a missed point in all the turtle stories that's ever been told. Maybe um, what you're now telling us is something that um, is is really interesting. So what you're essentially saying is that, if I understand you correctly, that that kind of rich would somehow, in a sense, encourage you a little bit to look outside just price, in a sense. Now, and and I don't want to say anything sort of uh, to be um, uh, un- unfair to to Rich here, but we know that one of the challenges that he had himself, and maybe the reason why he also wanted to have the turtle strat- uh, the program as a whole was sticking to a system. Right, I mean the the difficulty of of just staying just sticking to your rules, um, and of course nowadays you probably could, uh, with the help of computers, sort of combine price with news and and something fancy, and maybe people already do that. We know, of course, that AI works, but it's interesting, and I fully understand why people couldn't make it work back then because computers weren't as clever as they are now. But it's a really interesting thing. Now I want to clarify for people listening when we talk about JP and the references there. You want to go back to the uh, episode eight in the volatility series uh, with the chairman of CFM, um, Jean-Philippe uh, Bouchot and um, or Bouchard, and um, and 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 Harry Krishnan. That's the conversation that where we talked about, uh, or where where Harry talked about the, the this research um, that Jean-Philippe had done, and and this is what then spurs spurred on to the conversation I had with Rich, and that. Jerry is now referencing. So, so this is um, good stuff, and it puts a little bit of a different spin, I think, to uh, to the usual conversation, the usual narrative. And if if people think about it, Mark brought it up, I think, last week as well. Is that maybe it's time for us to think about the narrative of trend following in a slightly different light? Um, this could be helpful for many reasons. Uh, including for our own kind of understanding of what we're really doing, even after four or five decades of doing it. So, um, so this is why this is an ongoing conversation. I think it's actually a pretty interesting and exciting one. Um, and I want to bring you, Jerry, back to another conversation that um, has been going on. It went on for a number of years. Um, I that's how I remember it, and I know you have an incredible memory. Um, so I'm I'm very um, much looking forward to where we're going to go with this. But essentially, a few years back, I remember that people were coming out, both commentators and some people in, in our space were coming out and saying, hang on, 
Look at all those trend followers. They have made all their money from being long bonds, long short-term interest rates. Interest rates have gone down for 30 years. They are toast when interest rates start to go up. They're not going to make any money because it's been kind of a one-sided bet in their portfolio. Well, now we have had a period of time, several months actually since last summer, where interest rates have gone up. And if we look at the evidence, it certainly does not look like trend followers have not been able to make money. On the contrary, we talked about it earlier today. Some of the most profitable positions we've had on for the last few months have been short bonds, short, short term interest rates. And this is just the beginning of what could be a very long interest rate cycle uh, turning here. So, um, so I wanted to see if I could sort of jog your memory a little bit about some of those uh, articles. I had not time to find one that, that actually kind of confirms my, my memory of that discussion. But I do remember it being a discussion and clients kind of challenging um, me and, and, and many of our peers on that narrative, oh, trend following is not going to work again because interest rates are not going to keep going down. Um, I did find an article from written by PIMCO um, 10 years ago, and they make a pretty good point that I think we would agree with, that when you have these cycles and changes in the, say, five-year yield, they use that as the kind of uh, benchmark for that. When you've had those periods where it went up uh, more than 100 basis points, um, actually then trend following had done pretty well. So um, anyways, what, what are your memories of this uh, sort of um, topic or narrative a few years back? How, how do you remember it? Well, some of these articles even came from CTAs. And I think, you know, we all have yeah. a tendency to write stuff uh, objectively. Oh, and then it just so happens to coincide with my business plans as well. So invest with me uh, because I'm pointing out some negative stuff and about others. Uh, but I think the specific thing that they said was uh, all of what you said. And then plus it was something like um, if rates go back to where they were, CTAs will not make nearly what they made when the rates went up from that point because of this backwardization um, and not contango. So we they'll keep rolling back. Uh, roll, when they roll forward, it'll be at lower prices right. and not higher prices. And so uh, we can just, it's just put it into a spreadsheet. If, if rates go back to where they were in whatever year, they'll make half or a lot less than what they made when rates went up. Mm. Now, <clears throat> then people would write and, and argue, um, which is okay, but it's but we we got a better argument than this, which is that, well, don't just look at um, what, yes, okay, maybe we will make less in the bonds, but look what happens when bonds go up. I'm, I'm sorry, bonds go down, interest rates yes. go up. Yeah. To the other markets, we'll make a lot of money in inflation uh, in the commodities and in the currencies possibly, short equities. So you just can't focus on, maybe you have us here that we, look, why not say those dang CTAs, they just crush it whenever there's a big trend. Now, that would be too much praise. It, it may be a bit too accurate. Let's say, well, uh, they crushed it because, I mean, you know, anybody could have made it into those bonds, that bond uptrend. Anybody could have seen that. They were on it. But the bond downtrend that's going to come, they won't make nearly the amount of money. Okay. But that's true. I have seen studies even recently that say, uh, even when stocks go down, the CTAs are great uh, hedges 
But the biggest profits don't usually come from being short those stocks. It's other markets because we have so many other markets. And the same might be true about the bonds in the future as well. We may not make as much short the bonds if they go down. But but we could make a lot in the other markets. <clears throat> but I also call into question the analysis of this is what will happen if if uh, bonds go back to where they were, the CTAs won't do as well as they did on the upside. Maybe, uh, but um, I didn't see in any of those articles the acknowledgement that the positions are put on based upon uh, the ATR at the moment. So what if we get into a situation, and we're maybe already in a situation, what was the ATR when we went short these things months, a months ago? And now we have these open profits that, as you say, are just beginning possibly. So I agree, they're probably just beginning. I mean, some of the short-term interest rates that that were short, Euro dollar, short sterling, Euribor, uh, bank bills in Canada, and um, bankers' acceptances in Canada, and bank bills in Australia, the ATRs were so small you know, on these things. So what was the ATR at, when we got short those? What was the ATR years ago when we went long. Where's that analysis? I'm not seeing that analysis. And then another thing that belies is the trend-following belief that continues to be approved over and over all the time is that we can't predict these things. Crazy things can happen. What if the bonds go a lot higher? I mean, rates go a lot higher than they were many, many years ago. Well, that can never happen. Well, I don't know. Uh, we didn't think they could go negative either. So we're, we don't know what the future holds. And looking back on the past and extrapolating into the future is not something we agree with and not something we have done. And we've been rewarded so many times by participating in trends and, and economic fundamentals that have never existed, we've never seen before. But I'm pretty confident that regardless of what happens, uh, that's the winning formula. That's what we bring to people. And uh, if it's going to be difficult for us to make as much short the bonds as we did long the bonds, so what? We're fully equipped, better than any other strategy, to maximize the profit potential in these outlier moves, uh, more so than any other strategy. Yeah, and you bring up actually a good point, which is one of the most difficult things I find to uh, having to talk to uh, investors and potential investors about. And this is the thing about oh, but it's the wrong kind of trend, meaning, so let me explain that, right? So so when people see a move, let's just say for argument's sake, you, you, we have a big move uh, and, and bonds drop significantly. Well, we even if we know they're going to drop significantly, we can't tell in advance whether we're going to make money from it or whether we're going to you know, be flat or whether we're going to lose money on it because it depends on how that trend evolves, right? If it's too quick, maybe it's not a good thing for us. As you say, if it's a nice, uh, slow trend, then it might be perfect for us. Exactly the same as what's happening right now. The kind of top formation, if I can call it that, that we're seeing in some equity markets where it's bouncing up and down and 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 we're given a bit more time to potentially reduce our positions, pot potentially get short and all of that. It makes a huge difference than if we just see a one-day reversal from an all-time high in equities and then it drops 12% over the next five days. I mean, that's not a good scenario for us. So, and this is what it really comes down to, in my opinion, is that's what an uncorrelated return stream or non-correlated return stream, however you want to phrase it, looks like. You cannot tell in advance 
whether we're going to make money or whether we're going to lose money if you just look at it too narrowly. And I, and, I've, and I think people have really difficulty understanding that when they see, oh, but, you know, equities moved up from this point to that point. You must have made a lot of money from that. Well, maybe, maybe we did, but you can't say in advance. And, 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 and it's almost, it reminds me of that, even though we don't talk about much about crypto, by the way, generally speaking, but there is one acronym related to crypto that I think is pretty, could be worked quite well for trend following. That's HODL. Hold on for dear life, right? I mean, that's actually what you should do for trend following as well, because it really only works if you hold on to it for a long time, a really long time. Um, so maybe that's something we need to uh, adapt in our, or adopt, I should say, in our, in our trend following world. Hoddle. Maybe we need to come up with a different one just to not to be confused with, uh, with crypto. But anyways, any, anything else you want to add to this uh, debate? I mean, I mean, just looking at these markets and I don't know, I mean, I'm such a scaredy cat, you know, I am, I like to hold on to profits and I'm very quick to get out of losses and I love diversification, but just looking at these markets these days and my portfolio, which is like one of my children, I just love it so much. And I love all of these markets and I'm long and I'm short, just being, just not being long only stocks and just having some shorts and other things on and just having a mechanism that kind of gets you flat possibly, you know, when you do see some of these sell-offs in some of these markets, it's just such a benefit to your risk and your ability to survive uh, the future, which you cannot see. I, I just think that not having a systematic approach that gets you flat Peloton and Netflix and some of these markets that made money, there was a time to be in everything and to enjoy the uptrend, but not to have a sell discipline that at least takes you flat and reduces some of your risk would just make it hard for me to sleep at night. I maybe it's just uh, maybe trend followers are trend following is uh, mostly for people who major in accounting like me and rich and uh, and people who are naturally conservative. It's just kind of odd that if you want the maximum amount of control and risk control and risk management, you have to trade futures. It's kind of like a crazy way the world is kind of set up here. Yeah. Final, and this is not really a, a big topic per se, but I was because this thing about the interest rates and we couldn't make money if interest rates go up has been a little bit of a pet peeve of mine, but it's been hard to prove until now where we've actually had a period of time where interest rates have gone up. The other pet peeve I have is that I'm kind of tired of this narrative we always hear. And I hear it still that trend following has stopped working. And, and you know, I was looking at the SOC Gen uh, trend following index just to use an index, not let alone looking at individual managers where you've had now, uh, you know, 2021, 2020, 2019, three very good, solid years for a trend-following index. And I'm thinking, how can you continue to say that trend-following doesn't work? I mean, even 2022 has started pretty, pretty strongly, but, you know, it's early days. So I'm still wondering why that, that narrative is so prevalent in people's minds that they would take that argument and, and run with it. You know, I, I have no trouble being uh, 
a big critic of trend following. And uh, I definitely think it's, if you want to educate people, uh, which I'm all for about managed futures, CTAs, trend following, I definitely think you need to have uh, a strong dose of here are the problems with trend following. The, one of the big problems with mm -hmm. it is choosing it. You know, you, you can say it doesn't, I think just saying it doesn't work, it's not very specific. You know, it's not getting to the core issue. You can make it, you can say something much more ruder about it and much more damaging that just by saying, look, you chose it. You haven't had these trends in a while. Uh, so, you know, own it. And if you're waiting for these outliers, you're telling me how great they are and how great the historical performance and the back test is. Well, look, when we don't get the outliers, don't blame it on not getting outliers. I'm going to blame it on you for choosing this system. And I'm like, exactly. Blame it on me. But look, don't, don't come up with a pretend question that you don't know the answer to. And this cliche that trend following no longer works, what you're essentially saying is maybe we're not going to have any more outlier trades. Let's just be honest about it. Do you really think that we live in a world now where we're not going to see many outlier trades any longer? It's just a joke. Of course not. We're going to see these outlier trades. We have gone periods where we haven't seen them. Now, in the past couple of years, we're getting all a 10 years worth crammed into two years. And now, what are you going to do with these outliers? Exactly. Now, if we get them, what, how am I going to handle them? Am I going to stay on them? Am I going to maximize the profit? Now, let's get into the real criticism and the real analysis here. It's not a question about trend following not working because trend following is dominated by these outliers. And so, are we getting them? Are you, how are you handling them? Are you screwing them up? Are you getting out too quickly? Are you all targeting them? Are you not trading enough markets? You know, you got to trade more markets. You, you got to find them. They're out there. Did you trade them? Uh, so this is the type of dialogue, honest dialogue, we can get into with people. But this uh, kind of less than smart cliche of trend following, it's not working. It doesn't work any longer. It, it's way more fun conversations that we can have about outliers and how to find them and not having them. And are we going to have any more? Uh, I would just challenge anyone to sort of who, who works in finance or lives in this world today to think, oh, well, I think we're going to have a calm next 10 or 20 years. We probably won't see crazy things. No, no, exactly. That's right. So cool. All right. Well, speaking of doing well, I would say that um, the industry is doing pretty well so far. This year, and this is even without Friday, which I think was a pretty good day for uh, for trend following strategies as well. So as of Thursday night, Beta 50 index is up another 60 basis points in February. Uh, that makes it 2.28 for the year. The SockGen CT index up 73 basis points so far, up 2.82% for the year. Uh, SockGen trend index up uh, 1% so far in Feb, up 4.39% for the year. And the short-term traders index up 19 basis points for February up 1.43% for the year. My trend barometer has had um, some good solid readings lately. It finished at 57 on Friday, so still pretty strong, reflecting um, the performance we're seeing. In terms of uh, traditional market, the MSCI World Index is up 8 basis points in Feb, but it's still down 5.27 for the year. And the World Government Bond Index lost another 1.09% for the first five days of four days of February. Yeah, I mean, just as a as a quick reminder, of course, uh, just want to say that we know, of course, that your time is a great on renewable resource and that you lend us an hour or two of, 
of your uh, time each week to keep up with the podcast and to learn and to fail and get up with us to walk together on this journey of figuring out how to best invest in an uncertain and sometimes crazy world. And for that, we just want to always say that we are incredibly grateful. On this note, we're going to wrap up this conversation. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, And if you did, please head over to iTunes or Spotify, leave a rating and review so more people can find it. Next week, I'm back with Alan. So make sure you send in your questions uh, for us. You can email them to info at toptradersonplug.com and we'll do our best to get them answered for you. Um, And by the way, please send them early because we're going to be recording on Friday uh, already as I'm off on Saturday. From Jerry and me, thanks ever so much for listening. And in the meantime, until next time, I should say, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.